This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court is back in session for the March argument calendar. The justices are fully vaccinated, and they are, for the first time in about a year, meeting in person for their private conferences, but they are still holding oral arguments remotely. Uh, They are halfway through the March argument session, and we've had some orders, we've had some arguments, we've had some opinions. So we've got a lot to talk about. And joining me to talk about all of this is Katie Barlow, SCOTUS Blogs Media Editor. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for once again letting us turn the microphone around on you on your podcast. Oh, joy, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wonder the justices we know are meeting in person for conference, which makes me wonder if the cafeteria is open and if Justice Amy Coney Barrett has taken up her junior justice responsibilities of making sure the cafeteria is in working order. <laughs> That's true. We had Justice Kagan was the frozen yogurt justice, and then- yeah. Justice Gorsuch was the pizza justice. Was it just And apparently Breyer was salads. I think yeah, he so, expanded the salad you know, bar. What will we get next? <laughs> I'm very curious about they have to have snacks while they're meeting, right? I'd, I'd like to be back in person to find out. Yeah, right, right. Uh, the entire press corps shares that sentiment. So on to substantive things uh, and turning the mic fully around on you. We had a lot happened last week and uh, there's a lot to look forward to, um, in the coming weeks and month. So let's start with, we got a brand new grant from the court this week in the Boston marathon bomber case. And it kind of peaked beyond the press, the Supreme court press corps interest. It came up at the white house press conference actually, because it deals with his death sentence um, or sentences. And I believe the lower court throughout his death sentences and the, the justice department is currently seeking to reinstate them. Is that right? That's right. So this is the case of Zokar Zarnayev, who was one of the two boss, so-called Boston marathon bombers. This is the incident nearly eight years ago, it killed three people and injured hundreds of, of other people. And Zarnayev was sentenced to death. And the First Circuit threw out his death sentence last year um, on two grounds. They said the district court should have asked potential jurors about their exposure to media coverage of the case. Remember, I mean, it was everywhere uh, at the time. And then in the manhunt that followed, And then the Court of Appeals said that the district court should have allowed evidence of the involvement of Zarnayev's older brother in a separate and unrelated triple murder. Um, So the United States filed a petition for certiorari in October of 2020. And so the initial decision to seek the death penalty happened during the Obama administration. Um, the U.S. filed its petition for certiorari during the Trump administration that was then acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall. And the justices first considered the petition at their private conference in early January, and they considered it at seven separate consecutive conferences. And 
you know, those of us who read John Elwood's Relist column know that if, you know, when the justices consider a case over and over again that many times, usually it means that someone is writing a dissent from the denial of certiorari or perhaps a, there's a summary reversal in the works. But this in this case, we got a grant. Um, the It's kind of an unusual grant in the sense that the government's brief seeking review essentially admits that this is a case that might not normally meet the Supreme Court's criteria for review, but you know, basically says this is such an important case, it would be such a hardship to have to have another sentencing proceeding that the Supreme Court should weigh in and have the last word. And so there were questions at the White House press briefing that day when the Supreme Court granted review, because as a candidate, uh, Joe Biden promised to end the federal death penalty. And you can watch the clip for yourself, but the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, basically said, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do. You know, it's a, it's a pretty awkward position for the Biden administration, because on the one hand, you do have Biden, who said he would consider ending the federal death penalty. On the other hand, you know, I'm not sure that this is the case in which the Biden administration would necessarily want to do it. Right. It's interesting. It might be one that really forces their hand as it continues through the pipeline at the Supreme Court. It's certainly worth keeping an eye on and worth noting that the Trump administration brought the death penalty back into play, into force for the first time in 17 years. So there's a, it came up on the campaign trail because it was such a, a recent hot button issue. And we saw a number of death penalty appeals at the Supreme Court over the summer and leading up to the election in November and even after. All right. Turning to the arguments that we had this week, the court grappled with a few cases that seemed like it wasn't quite clear which direction they were going to go. But let's start with Cedar Point, the California property rights dispute about this decades old law that allows union organizers or requires farm workers to allow union organizers onto their property. Tell us about oral argument and and that case a little bit. Yeah. So this is, as you said, it's a regulation that dates back to 1975, um, it allows union organizers to go onto the property of agricultural employers, particularly growers, for up to three hours a day, 120 days per year to meet with farm workers. And the rationale is that workers, farm workers are often pretty transient, may live on site, and it may be the only way that unions can get in touch with them um, and try to convince them to join a union. So a couple of agricultural businesses went to court arguing that this regulation constituted a government taking of their property without payment, which violates the constitution. And the lower courts disagreed. So the growers took the case to the Supreme Court, which agreed to weigh in. And this is the sort of thing in which just sort of intuitively you'd expect that the conservative justices would be sympathetic. And they were to a point. And it was really an interesting case to listen to the oral argument because on the one hand, they were sympathetic, but on the other hand, uh, there was a sense that perhaps the legal position that the growers were taking may have gone a little bit too far. 
um, for perhaps a majority of the justices. Several of the justices were concerned that adopting the growers rule might make it harder for the government to conduct some routine health and safety inspections. For example, everything from like mine workers safety inspections to social workers, you know, checking up on families who are supposed to be in their care. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh seemed to want to go with sort of a middle ground. He said, you know, why do we need to reinvent the wheel here? He said, you know, why do we have to issue this, like a really sweeping decision? Why can't we just rely on this 1956 case um, involving a different regulation, a federal regulation that didn't involve agricultural growers, but that allowed union organizers to go onto private property if they wouldn't otherwise be able to reach the workers. And neither side really liked that approach. California didn't like it because it would almost certainly lose under that approach. And then the growers didn't like it because they were looking for a much broader rule. But yeah, and it's always hard to tell with these with the oral argument format that the justices are using, but it seemed like maybe that might be a middle ground that that could get at least five votes. So speaking of the oral argument format that the justices have been using remotely that got switched up a little bit this week in the Coniglia v. Strom case, which I want to first ask you about oral argument generally, and then we'll get to the the change up that happened at the end and the format for oral argument. But that case, the court also seemed to grapple with the tough issue of deciding about community caretaking. And there's really a ton of issues going on in this case. I was actually surprised by oral argument where the court went um, based on the many issues presented. But uh, what what was your takeaway from Coniglia before we get into the, the free for all at the end? Yeah, no, this, is a, this is a case about what's known as the community caretaking exception to the general requirement that police need a warrant to enter your home. And it was the case of a Rhode Island man whose wife called police, was concerned about his mental state. So police went to his home. He was on the front porch. They convinced him to go to the hospital. But then because they were worried about his mental state, they entered his home and took his guns. And he brought uh, a lawsuit arguing that they needed a warrant to go into his house to do that. And the justices had all kinds of, of hypotheticals about, you know, what the police could and could not do. And, you know, just, you know, stuff about like cats in trees and the chief justice had one about, you know, if you have an older neighbor who's supposed to be coming for dinner and her door is open, you know, can you go in and help her? Um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh was particularly concerned about, you know, if you were worried that someone's going to commit suicide. And so it was, they were really active and you could really sort of see what was on their mind. And, you know, with both of these cases, it's kind of like, where do you, like, this is what the justices do. And it sort of goes to the point that the justices, when they hear oral argument, you know, they only hear somewhere, you know, last year, I think it was only 59 cases usually it's somewhere between 65 and 80 cases a year. Um, You know, they're not just making law for those particular cases. They're making law for the whole country. And a lot of what they do is, is trying to figure out where they draw the lines. And so if you're, if you're a lawyer arguing there, you know, you're not, you need to be prepared, not just to deal with your case, but sort of how do you draw the lines? How do you help the court uh, establish a rule that's going to govern for the whole country? The hypotheticals were 
a bit wild during that case. There were cats and rats and babies and yes, the plague. older neighbors next to <laughs> the plague. Yeah. The, uh, the transcript of that oral argument was particularly entertaining. I would recommend it for anyone who wants some um, reading that might put you to sleep, but it's mildly entertaining with all of the different hypotheticals. Um, so what happened at the end of oral argument that kind of um, mixed it up a bit, I'd say? Yeah, so since they have been doing the remote arguments, the ju- as many of our listeners know, the justices have been taking turns. They have... You know, each justice has a specific amount of time that's allocated to him or her, depending on, you know, how many lawyers are arguing um, to question each advocate. And they go through an order of reverse senior an order of seniority. So they start with the chief justice, they go to Justice Thomas, they go then Justice Breyer, uh, Justice Alito, uh, you know, all the way down to Justice Barrett. Um, and then when they finish, they they move on to the next lawyer. Um, it has its benefits. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot more from Justice Thomas than we, we ever did under the normal format when they're on the bench in person, you know, which is just kind of a free-for-all. Um, but, it, it, you know, it is very different. Uh, I think that a lot of the lawyers who argue regularly before the court prefer the old format. A lot of the uh, reporters who cover the court uh, have prefer the old format, Lyle Denniston, who used to cover the court for SCOTUS blog and has covered the court for, uh, you know, over 50 years, uh, has very strong feelings about this format. You know, I, I, I can, to a certain extent, understand why they're using it. If they are all truly on the phone, uh, not able to see each other, uh, and they use their normal style where they're all just asking questions willy-nilly. It could be a bit of a disaster. Uh, they'd be sort of constantly interrupting each other and interrupting the lawyers. Um, so what they did during the Coniglia argument after after the uh, lawyer for the, the man, Edward Coniglia, had finished, after the lawyers had finished, they looked at the chief justice looked at him and said, well, you know, we gave, we gave the other lawyers more time. And so to, to catch up, we're going to give you a little bit more time for rebuttal, but we're also going to open the floor so that the justices can ask questions. And so the chief justice asked question, a question, uh, Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Sotomayor all had questions without sort of waiting to take turns. It was much more like the old format. And, and you know, as far as I can tell, the sky did not fall. Uh, <laughs> Right. It was a a quick flashback to sort of more normal times. Speaking of the the many hypotheticals that came up in Coniglia, I think it was Ariane DeVogue who pointed out that it was interesting. It's interesting for oral advocates because in the five minute time, a justice can really nail you down on, you know, requiring an answer from you on a hypothetical or a series of their questions. Justice Kagan's series of hypotheticals in the Arizona voting rights case comes to mind where she really had that dedicated five minutes to get answers. Whereas in the free for all, another justice can jump in and kind of cut off a a stream of questions. And so that, that might be in some ways more intense. So there were two opinions we also got this week in Ford Motor Company and in Torres v. Madrid. 
Do you want to break them down for us briefly before we hop on to what's coming up at the court? Sure. So Ford Motor Company is a pair of cases involving what's known as personal jurisdiction, a court's power over the defendant being sued. You, know, you can't just haul anyone into court anywhere. Um, so these were lawsuits against Ford in Minnesota and Montana, alleging problems in the company's cars. The accident at issue had occurred in the states where the lawsuit was being brought. The victims were from the state where the lawsuit was being brought. But Ford said, no, 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 there's no personal jurisdiction because the cars were manufactured and sold elsewhere in a different state. Um, and the court, by a vote of eight to zero, because Justice Barrett wasn't on the court yet, said no. Um, Justice Kagan wrote the opinion for five justices. They said, Ford does a lot of business in those states, and it doesn't matter that there isn't a connection between its activities in those states and the plaintiff's claims. Um, Justice Alito wrote an opinion agreeing with the result, if not the reasoning, in Justice Kagan's opinion. And then uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, did the same and was joined by Justice Thomas. And that sound you hear is the groan of law students who just got their civil procedure outlines lengthened by a substantial amount, perhaps by getting exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It was, you know, and it was a little bit of a surprise because the Roberts Court has made it a little bit harder, uh, you know, sort of narrowed personal jurisdiction in, in some of its past decisions recently. So it was a little bit of a surprise that that uh, the, the plaintiff side in these cases won and, you know, won by a vote of eight to zero. And then in Torres v. Madrid, we got a pretty huge Fourth Amendment opinion. Yeah. What happened so, in that one? Yeah. So the Fourth Amendment bars unreasonable searches and seizures. So this was a case about what it means to be a seizure. Uh, it's the case of a New Mexico woman uh, who pol police approached. They were sort of in the parking lot with an arrest warrant for somebody else. But then they wanted to talk to her because she was behaving strangely. She was worried that they might be trying to carjack her. So she tried to drive away. They were worried that she was going to hit them. So they shot at her. Um, she was injured and she drove away, in fact, drove like 75 miles before she went to a hospital. Um, and so she brought a federal civil rights claim against the officers claiming that they used excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. But the Fourth Amendment, as I said, applies to unreasonable searches and seizures. So the question was, was she seized um, if she was shot? but then she was able to drive away. Um, and by a vote of five to three, again, Justice Barrett was not yet on the court. In an opinion by the Chief Justice, the court said yes. The court said, if you apply physical force to someone's body, it was a pretty sweeping opinion. Um, if you apply physical force to someone's body with the intent to restrain them, that's a seizure, even if you are unsuccessful in actually stopping them. Um, so Justice Gorsuch dissented joined by Justices Thomas and Alito. Um, and Justice Gorsuch doesn't really mince any words in his dissent. You know, he says, you know, in his introduction, things like neither the constitution nor common sense can sustain the courts, the courts holding today. So it was a very interesting sort of lineup in the sense that you had the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh sort of uh, crossing over to join the court's three liberal justices. 
Um, and then Justice Barrett was recused. So it would have been very interesting, you know, had she been there, it might not have made a difference in, in the outcome of the case, but it would have been kind of interesting to see what side she would line up on. Do you think it reinforces the notion that perhaps Justice Kavanaugh is becoming the swing vote um, or that it's perhaps just a one-off? You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's so hard to say, but certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, because we have, we're still pretty early in the term, but this was, was a major case. And to see this lineup is fascinating and significant, I think. All right. So we also have a perfectly timed NCAA case coming up during the height of March Madness. March Madness, exactly. Which I wonder who scheduled that for this particular timing and if it wasn't (laughs) perhaps on purpose. Looking ahead to to what's coming up next, we have the NCAA case and also TransUnion, if you want to preview those. Sure. Just uh, very briefly. So, you know, NCAA players, you know, they can get scholarships, but this is a challenge to the NCAA's limits on providing other education-related benefits like computers, science equipment, postgraduate scholarships. Um, A group of Division I football and basketball players argue that these limits violate federal antitrust laws. About 35 years ago, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called NCAA versus Board of Regents that rules about eligibility standards for college athletes are subject to a different and less stringent analysis than most antitrust cases. Um, But the Ninth Circuit agreed with the athletes. So the NCAA and 11 major athletic conferences came to the Supreme Court uh, asking the justices to weigh in. And they said, you know, if the Ninth Circuit's ruling is allowed to stand, it will sort of just transform college sports, blurring the line between college athletes and professional athletes. Um, the athletes say, like, look at this system. Um, you know, the system right now, conference executives, athletic directors, coaches are making billions of dollars on the backs of young, often underprivileged players. So, you know, particularly in the context of March Madness, I think it's going to be a fascinating one to watch. I agree. And what about TransUnion? So TransUnion is a follow-on case to a case called Spokio versus Robbins. That was a case in which a Virginia man claimed that the internet database violated federal law when it published inaccurate information about him. Um, And the justices ruled in that case that to have a legal right to sue you, it's not enough to just say that a company has violated a statute. You have to show that an injury, that there's like a, a, a real injury, that what's called a concrete injury. Um, and so this is sort of the follow-on in the sense that the justices are considering, again, how these requirements apply to class actions. It's a case of a man who went to a car dealership to buy a car. He filled out a credit application and the credit check revealed that his name matched names on a treasury department list of people known as specially designated nationals with whom U.S. companies can't do business because they are believed to pose a threat to the country's national security or economy. 
Um, and he wasn't either of the people on the list. Um, but based on the alert, the dealer recommended that Ramirez's wife purchase the car only in, in her name. And then he wound up canceling the trip to Mexico. So he brought a lawsuit against TransUnion um, and brought it as a, a class action. The jury awarded the class of over 8,000 people um, in the end, approximately $40 million. And so there are a couple of questions in this lawsuit involving, you know, sort of whether or not every member of the class has to have a legal right to sue um, and whether or not they in fact have a common injury. Um, this is sort of sort of hammering out exactly what the Supreme Court meant in the Spokio decision. And even if all of the members of the, the class action have an injury, whether or not the class can continue sort of as it is because Ramirez isn't a typical representative of the class because he's such a, basically because he's such a sympathetic plaintiff. Both of those cases will be closely watched. And of course, we'll be covering them. The last tiny bit of news in the news populated week was we have a May oral argument. Yes, it was so much fun last year that we get to do it again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, last year, the justices wound up because of COVID having to cancel the March and April argument sessions, and they rescheduled, you know, some of those cases for May by telephone and then heard oral argument and the rest in October. This year, it's just, as far as we know, one so far, a case called Terry versus United States. Um, We've talked before, I I believe, about the change in administration from the Trump administration to the Biden administration and cases at the Supreme Court in which the change in administration has resulted in a shift in position for the United States. And so this is one of those cases. It's a case involving sentencing for defendants who were sentenced for low-level crack co- who were sentenced for low-level crack cocaine offenses. Um, and so the Supreme Court, announced in early January, so still during the Trump administration, that they would take up the case. Terry had asked the Supreme, Terry, the defendant, had asked the Supreme Court to take the case. Um, The justices announced in early January that they would do so. Terry filed his brief on February 12th. And on March 15th, which happened to be basically the same day that the United States' brief on the merits was due, the Biden administration's acting solicitor general sent the justices a letter saying, oh, by the way, we are no longer defending the lower court's ruling. We agree that he's entitled to the relief that he's asking for. So then the question is, well, what happens next? Because frequently what would happen in a case like this is that the justices would appoint a friend of the court to defend the ruling below. But the case was scheduled for oral argument in April and the clock was kind of ticking 
um, to be able to do that. And so the justices took the case off of the April argument calendar. They did appoint a lawyer to defend the 11th Circuit's ruling. Um, but because Terry is scheduled to be released from prison in September, the justices didn't want to wait until the fall to hear oral argument. So they scheduled the case for May, which you can do if you're hearing oral argument by telephone. You, nobody has to be in the courtroom. Uh, you can do it from wherever you happen to be. Um, so we get to have uh, another May oral argument. Have they said for sure the May oral argument will be, I mean, I, I, I imagine naturally it would. They've said that it will definitely be via telephone. No, they have. That is an excellent point. They have not said that it will be by telephone. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, the justices themselves have all been, the court's public information office has told us, fully vaccinated. Um, you know, the, the, the broader question is, you know, the, the lawyers may or may not have been vaccinated by then. This, the Senators for Disease Control are, are still discouraging travel. And, you know, the, the question is whether or not they'd want to, to have a, a hearing. Right. It's likely, though. Yes. All right. Well, that's a wrap on a news heavy week and a look ahead. Amy, thanks for again, letting us turn the microphone around on you. We always learn something. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for joining me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our sponsor, Case Text. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.